Section six of the Book of Wales. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colleen McMahon. The Book of Wales by Frank Evers Bettered. Chapter two Some Internal Structures. Part two The Shoulder Girdle. The shoulder girdle of the whales consists of an apparently single bone which has a highly characteristic form, liable to some range of variation. The major part of this bone is formed of the scapula, while a process directed forward is the coracoid, more pronounced in the larger number of whales than in any other among the higher mammalia. The scapula is broad and flattened, but both the breadth and the degree of flattening is not by any means uniform. In the sperm whale, the bone is gently concave. It is very much broader, i.e. longer, in an antero-posterior direction in the rorquals than in the right whales. Near to the anterior edge of the blade bone is a ridge, which ends in a particularly long process, the acromion. Only in the megaptera is this process, and also the coracoid process underlying it, markedly reduced. In platinista, there is another abnormality of structure. The acromion coincides absolutely with the anterior margin of the blade bone, so that the ridge of the spine of the scapula is quite absent as a distinct structure. It is worthy of note that in Megaptera, which has the longest flippers of all whales, the acromion and the coracoid process should be reduced to a minimum or even practically absent. Organs of Respiration not only is the influence of a purely aquatic life to be seen in the outward form of whales, the respiratory organs and parts annexed show the same modification. Bearing in mind the peculiar habits of whales, their capacity for remaining a long time under water, and the necessity, therefore, of supplying themselves with a good stock of air for use during those prolonged immersions, we should indeed expect to find that in the vascular, as well as in the respiratory organs, there were differences to be seen not found in mammals which are purely terrestrial and this is precisely what we do find but here again it is not always easy to distinguish between adaptational likeness and the real affinity it is that is to say not always clear that structures supposed to be modified owing to the habits of the creature are not marks of likeness to some other family of mammals but we shall consider these points as they arise Dr. Otto Mueller, who has recently and elaborately dealt with this matter, has particularly dwelt upon the form of the chest cavity in these aquatic mammals. Among terrestrial creatures, the shape of this cavity is, as a rule, boat-like in transverse section. The cavity narrows below and is wider above. Furthermore, its ventral boundary line is about as long as its dorsal, the result of this being that the diaphragm, the partly tendinous but chiefly fleshy septum which separates the chest cavity from that in which are lodged the liver, intestines, and stomach, has a vertical direction, and stands, as it were, upright in the body. In the whales, on the other hand, the chest cavity is more barrel-shaped, oval in section, sometimes, indeed, transversely oval. Its dorsal boundary is much longer than its ventral, and in consequence the diaphragm is distinctly and mostly very oblique in direction. It is, however, one thing to state these differences, and quite another to assert that they are modifications connected with the aquatic habit. 
It might be suggested in the first place that these marks of distinction are merely characteristic of whales, just as it is characteristic of one division of whales to have a free malar bone, a fact which is simply of classificatory significance and has no bearing, at least so far as we can see, upon any special difference in the mode of life of its possessor. Furthermore, the obliquity of the diaphragm might be associated with the shortening of the sternum, which is so marked a character of the whales, especially of the whalebone whales. A whole series of facts, however, upset these at first sight reasonable objections, and seem to prove the contrary, i.e., that the modifications in question are really connected with the aquatic life and with nothing else. In the otter, and still more in the seal, which are examples of two stages in the literally downward progress of a land animal toward an aquatic existence, these several characters are seen in a condition intermediate to that which obtains in the purely land animal on the one hand and in the purely aquatic whales on the other. And furthermore, in the manatee, which, if it be an ally of the whale, can hardly be regarded as an ally of the carnivora, to which group, of course, the otter and the seal belong, there is the same obliquity of the diaphragm. Thus, in three types, the whale, the manatee, and the seal, we have the same series of modifications existing. If the whale is a relative of the manatee, it is not of the seal, so that any renewed attempt to urge the argument from affinity fails. As to the obliquity of the diaphragm being due to the reduction of the sternum, this is disproved by several instances among the whales. In beluga, the diaphragm is attached to the sternum before its end. In hyperodon, the same is the case, while in balanoptera, the attachment is altogether behind the sternum. There is thus no special relation to be observed between the end of the sternum and the ventral insertion of the diaphragm. Moreover, as showing that it is a modification of a recent kind, it is interesting to notice that in the porpoise of the youngest stage that has been observed, the relative proportions of the ventral and the dorsal line of the thoracic cavity are as 1 to 1.75, while in the adult, the same proportions are as 1 to 2.25. Thus, these peculiarities are developed quite late, showing that they are a recent acquisition, and tending therefore to prove that they are developed in consequence of altered habitat. The lungs themselves are characterized by their simple form. In the mammalia, generally, the lungs are more complex. They are divided into a number of separate lobes, the practical result of which is to increase the lung surface without any corresponding need for an enlarged chest cavity to contain them in. The same result is brought about in the whale by the increased length of the lungs themselves. As already mentioned, the chest cavity is proportionately larger than in terrestrial mammals. Therefore, it follows that the lungs can be bigger without any lobulation. As a matter of fact, they are. What is uncertain at present is whether this simplicity is a primitive feature in the organization of these animals or whether it is a reduction following upon the alteration of other conditions. It is exceedingly difficult to decide such matters. But before we attempt to decide, another important feature of the structure of these aquatic mammals must be mentioned. In many parts of the body of whales, the blood vessels form, to a very copious degree, the anastomosing networks, which are known technically as retia mirabilia. Erete mirabile is produced by the breaking up of an artery into a meshwork of minuter arterioles. The net physiological result, so far as concerns the mechanical effects of such a breaking up, is the slowing of the bloodstream at such spots 
and the increase of the surface of blood exposed to the surrounding organs and tissues. It seems to follow from this that the oxygen contained in the blood would be more fully utilized by the tissues through which the retia pass than in the case of a single tube. In fact, in the whale we have a state of affairs which in some degree suggests the respiratory conditions occurring in an insect, where the ramifying tracheae bring the air to the organs individually, instead of, as in the bulk of air-breathing animals, the air having to be extracted from the blood by the tissues. These large reservoirs of oxygen within the body, and in close relation to various organs which need abundant oxygen, then do away with the need for an increased lung surface in these diving animals. But not altogether. It looks as if the simpler condition of the lung had been retained, for in reptiles the lungs have the same simple, unlobulated structure, the increase being simply brought about by an increased length rendered possible by the greater obliquity of the diaphragm. The Whale's Stomach It is a highly characteristic feature of whales, and one which is absolutely universal, that they have an exceedingly complicated stomach. In man, the stomach is simply a bent, somewhat U-shaped, wide region of the gut. There is, however, a difference observable in the structure of the lining membrane between what is called the cardiac portion of the organ, so-called because it lies nearest the heart, and the distal pyloric region out of which opens the intestine. As a rare abnormality, however, the stomach of man is divided by constrictions into three chambers. Among rodents, it is common for the stomach to be divided into two or more less sharply marked off chambers by a median constriction. This chambering of the stomach is, however, carried out to a large extent only in the sirenia, manatee, the sloth, the ruminants, oxen, antelopes, deer, camels, and in the whales. It must not be at once concluded from this circumstance that the whales are related intimately to one or other or to all of these groups. We shall see presently that the divided stomach of the whales is essentially different from the divided stomach of the other animals. They simply have in common the bare fact that it is divided. But before proceeding to generalities, it will be convenient to lay before the reader some of the facts. We cannot give here a detailed account of the stomach in the entire order. Dr. Jungklaus, the most recent writer upon the subject, quotes no less than 63 memoirs apart from his own, which deal entirely, or more or less incidentally, with the cetacean stomach. To this memoir of Dr. Jungklaus's we must refer for additional details, and for this list of literature. The common porpoise may conveniently serve as a starting point. Its stomach is among the least complicated, and it is clearly the most accessible of whales for study. In that creature, the stomach has the form which is indicated in a diagrammatic form in the accompanying sketch. The esophagus opens into a wide blind sac, near to the upper esophageal side of which opens out of this the second division of the stomach. At the lower end of this ladder, and in the thickness of its wall, is a small passage, regarded as the third division, which leads into a long and rather narrow division of the stomach. This is the fourth chamber. It is curved in an undulating fashion, and from it arises the commencement of the small intestine, which commencement is dilated and might be regarded by some as a fifth stomachal chamber, were it not for the fact that into it opens the combined duct of the liver and of the pancreas. Beluga and the narwhal have stomachs which agree in many points with each other and differ slightly from the porpoise. Those whales, as will be seen later, form a well-defined group of dolphins, contrasting in other points with the remaining delphinidae. 
In both of them, the first division of the stomach is strongly divided into two separate chambers. The minute third chamber of the porpoise stomach, simply in that animal an excavation in the thick wall of compartment two, is here larger, and a distinct chamber visible before the stomach is dissected. Finally, there is a fifth chamber, separated off from the fourth, and like it of an elongated intestiniform shape. Of the other dolphins, while Globocephalus and Grampus are most like Monodon, Orcella is most like the common porpoise, so too are Platanista and Pontiporia. The stomach of Balanoptera musculus, our example of a whalebone whale, is constructed upon the same plan as that of those dolphins that have been already considered. It has four chambers like that of the porpoise, but the proportions are a little different. This will be observed from the accompanying figure. It will be noted that the second chamber is larger than the first, and that the fourth is relatively small. A still greater reduction is seen, according to Sir William Turner, in the stomach of Balina mysticetus, at least in the fetus of that whale. The author just mentioned counted but three chambers in its stomach. The small intermediate chamber, three, appears to be absent. The stomach of the xiphioid whales is in one important respect different from that of the whale group that we have hitherto considered. The stomachs of the genera Hyperodon, Mesoplodon, and Xiphias have been carefully examined by more than one observer. Berardius alone is as yet unknown as regards its soft parts. As a general rule, the xiphioid whales differ from others in the very large number of compartments into which the stomach is divided. Nine, ten, even thirteen or fourteen divisions have been recorded, and the varied statements which occur in the literature of the subject with respect to the exact number of compartments in the stomach of a given species are not, it is thought, evidence of inaccuracy on the part of one or more of the describers, but simply an expression of actual variability. This, however, is a detailed difference. The most important difference is that the first division of the stomach gives off the second at its posterior and not at its anterior end. In the stomachs of the whales that we have been considering, a cuttlefish or a herring, when swallowed, might, so far as anatomical arrangement is concerned, pass at once into the second compartment as well as into the first, as will at once be seen in division number two. That would be impossible in a xiphioid. The first compartment of their stomachs is large, and from it lead, from the opposite extremity, be it remembered, to that where the esophagus enters, six to thirteen smallish, round, orange-shaped cavities, of which the last, that immediately preceding the duodenum, is often the largest. It is so, for instance, in Musoplodon bidens. What, then, is the exact correspondence between the stomachs of these whales and those of the dolphins and whalebone whales? The inevitable conclusion is that the first compartment of the latter whales is missing in the stomach of the xiphioids. This conclusion is not only supported by a comparison of the actual structures concerned, as is so often the case, the solution of the problem is aided here by those occasional occurrences so useful to the morphologist of rudiments. In Hyperodon, Dr. Jungklaus has detected a small representative of the first stomach of other whales in the form of a slight cacal dilatation of the esophagus just before it opens into the normal first stomach of that whale. This rudiment seems obviously to have the significance that he suggests, and moreover it showed internally a characteristic meandering arrangement of the folds of mucous membrane, an arrangement which is universal, or nearly so, in the first division of the stomach of dolphins. It appears, therefore, 
that the stomach of the Xiphioids is to be derived from that of dolphins and not vice versa. This is in harmony with other considerations, which point to the Xiphioids as modified, not archaic, forms of whales. See below. We may now compare the complicated whale stomach with the complicated ruminant's stomach. The latter, when typically developed, has the characters shown in the following description. The esophagus leads into a large paunch, the rumen. It equally leads into a smaller pouch, the reticulum. From this latter arises the salterium, so called from the leaf-like arrangement of its folds of mucous membrane. Finally, there is the abomasum, the truly digestive part of the stomach. In having four compartments, the stomach of a typical ruminant agrees with that of the porpoise, but at this point the agreement stops. The first three divisions of the ruminant's stomach are clothed with esophageal epithelium. It is only the abomasum which is the truly digestive part of the stomach. Thus, in the ruminant, the stomach may be regarded as being primarily divided into two regions, the last of which only is the digestive portion. The first part is, again, sharply marked off into three regions. In the cetacea, on the other hand, the stomach, although like that of the ruminant divided primarily into two parts, shows a further subdivision of the digestive part, which may be exceedingly complicated in the xiphioids, while the non-digestive region is generally not divided at all. And if it is, i.e. monodon, etc., the division is not of so marked a character as in the ruminants. Even in the manatee, the stomach is more ruminant than cetacean, for the true digestive stomach, apart from its two cacae, is not divided. Thus, the stomach of ruminant and cetacean have only this in common, that the stomach is primarily divisible into two parts, but that is a universal character, and is indeed seen in other vertebrates, for example in birds, sharks, etc. From such a simply divided stomach, as is seen in various rodents, and in other types of mammals, both the cetacean and the ruminant stomach may have arisen, and the resemblances between them will in this case be an example of that frequent phenomenon in the organic world, convergence. To account for this likeness by convergence is a matter of interesting inquiry. The other complicated stomachs which are found in mammals are invariably associated with a vegetarian diet. The sloth, the oxen and the sheep, and the manatee and dugong are all vegetable feeders. The whales are most distinctly carnivorous animals. It has been suggested, however, that whales ruminate like oxen. This process, in the ruminantia, consists of the following series of acts. The animal bites off and swallows an immense amount of herbage, leaves, etc., and swallows them hastily. The mass thus swallowed is permeated by the saliva and is then returned to the mouth, where it is thoroughly masticated at leisure and re-swallowed to be properly digested. It is held that the ruminantia, being as a rule timid creatures, who have to be on their guard against their numerous carnivorous foes, gain an advantage by this apparently complicated and even disadvantageously complicated act. They can lay in their store of food hastily and with rapidity, and then, at a more convenient season, when danger is not so pressing, remasticate and digest it at their leisure. Whales often feed among dense swarms of cuttlefish, crustaceans, etc., and it might seem that here, too, a kind of rumination might take place. The immense amount of food swallowed might be kept in the first division of the stomach and regurgitated for subsequent chewing. The fact that a large number of seals and porpoises, perfectly whole and intact, were found in the first division of the stomach of an orca seems to favor this hypothesis, as does also the statement of many 
that whales when captured generally allow some undigested even unlacerated food to escape by the mouth but on the contrary view which is that usually accepted we must consider the structure of the mouth teeth and tongue all of which have an important bearing upon the existence or non-existence of prolonged mastication such as characterizes ruminantia the numerous and homodont teeth are not fitted for chewing they are fitted simply for catching and retaining slippery fish and squid the great length of the jaw in many forms does not permit of the essential lever action of the jaws in chewing and finally the immobile tongue is not of any use in aiding the performance of the function of mastication a mobile tongue is obviously required to push back the food as it escapes from between the teeth it is thus practically certain that whales do not ruminate but in that case of what use is the first stomach devoid as it is of glands in the ruminant is a large storehouse in whales this would seem to be needless it is thought that the first stomach of the whale is a chamber in which the food is to some extent broken up and softened by mechanical means it is analogous in fact on this view to the bird's gizzard the muscular layers of its walls are thicker than in the thin-walled rumen of the ruminant often too this compartment has been found to contain sand and stones just as does the bird's gizzard and for the matter of that the stomach of the sea lion this introduction of sand and stones may be accidental but on the other hand its presence may be explained as an accessory to the trituration of the food it is obvious that a trituration of this kind and rumination are mutually exclusive the balance of probability is in favor of the former action of the first stomach but even now we have not accounted for the complication of the true digestive stomach it is to be noticed however that here as already stated we are free from any analogy with the herbiferous stomach in the sirenia and ruminants this part of the stomach is not complicated it is only the first part associated with the non-digestive functions of the stomach this problem it is to be feared we must leave unsolved finally there is the fact of the absence of the first stomach in the xiphioids to explain physiologically dr jungklaus thinks that this is associated with their exclusive diet of cuttlefishes which require no stomachal mastication their tissues are soft and are easily digested by the digestive part of the stomach without any previous maceration and pressing end of section six recording by colleen mcmahon